In the 1970s, the northern Iowa community of Waverly was shaken to its core when three young women would be viciously murdered. The Waverly Three, as they would come to be called, would all die by strangulation and would all be discovered in a similar fashion. The quiet home of Wartburg College would first be mortified in 1971 when 14-year-old Valerie Lynn Klosowski would disappear from the streets of Waverly, only to be found two days later on a creek bed, her neck broken from the force of the strangulation that took her life. Despite an extensive investigation, her murderer would never be found. The town sat quiet until 1975, when a new investigation would be opened, an investigation into the disappearance of 18-year-old Julie Ann Benning, an investigation that would end the following spring and would quickly turn from a missing person into a homicide. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and this is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 2, The Waverly Three, Part 2, Julie Benning. I'd like to welcome everyone back for our second episode. Just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on unsolved and missing murdered cases located within the Midwestern region of the United States. We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Audible, and wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is the second in a three-part series focusing on three young women who were murdered in separate attacks, but all resided in the same town of Waverly. While the information in episode 1 isn't particularly pertinent to this episode, it will be pertinent to some theories put forth in the next episode, so I do encourage you to go back and listen to episode 1 on the murder of Valerie Klasowski if you have not already done so. Now, without further ado, on to today's case. Julia, or Julie as she would go by, and Benning, was born December 12, 1956, to Lowell and Joanne Benning. She would grow up on a farm in rural Clarksville, Iowa, with her parents as well as four sisters. All reports indicate that Julie was a well-behaved teenager, but free-spirited and outspoken at the same time. While shorter than most of her classmates at 4 foot 11 inches, she was noted as being bright, beautiful, spunky, and ambitious, with a quick smile and a zany laugh. She was active in high school band, choir, and speech contest. She enjoyed the tasseling corn in the summer as the bus ride to the field gave her the opportunity to talk with other kids and make new friends. Along with her local friends, she was also known to have pin pals in Michigan and Scotland. She truly seized every opportunity to make new friends and get to know interesting people. Julie was also an avid music fan. She loved the music of the time. Her love of music and outgoing attitude were so strong together she had no hesitations about jumping the fence at an Eagles concert to chat with frontman Glenn Fry. She had also seized the opportunity for her and her sister to have dinner with Rocker's Fog Hat, and she even corresponded with the drummer for Tanya Tucker for a time. She had a creative side to her as well. She enjoyed designing and sewing her own dresses, as well as painting landscapes and portraits of things that were close to her heart. A photograph provided to iowacoldcases.org by the Benning family, shows Julie with a few of these paintings, as well as a floral painted backdrop on her wall. The non-painted parts of the wall are plastered with band posters, showing a young woman who was truly passionate about the things she enjoyed. Her artistic and free-thinking attitude is most likely what led her to having an interest in investigative journalism, an interest she was already following by writing for her school newspaper. In an article Julie wrote for the Plainfield High School newspaper, Julie shared her thoughts on murder and the death penalty by writing, Murder is a horrible crime to commit, and of course, the offender must be punished. But does that mean he should rot in prison until he dies? I don't think so. Nor do I think any person has the right to say someone should never be let out of prison or give him the death penalty. Put yourself in their shoes. The convicts are still humans too. 
I hope people will be willing to help them and lend support in Convict's efforts to rehabilitate themselves. A very progressive thought at the time in rural Iowa, this statement would later be used in poor taste by some newspapers for headlines, apparently feeling it was necessary to point out the irony that Julie herself had been murdered after making such bold statements. After graduating high school in the spring of 1975, Julie would not have the money to attend college right away, so she opted to work to raise the required funds. Rather than look for work in the small town of Clarksville, she would travel 14 miles southeast to the nearby town of Waverly. Julie would first attempt to find a job at a local radio station, but was informed by the manager that she lacked the proper experience and education. She would then try her luck at a bowling alley. However, her application would join a stack of several other individuals looking to work at the same location. It was at this point Julie walked into the Sir Lounge, a local strip joint, and was hired on the spot as a cocktail waitress. This move pained and surprised Julie's religious parents. Despite her good looks and outgoing attitude, Julie had rarely dated in high school and was not known to attend parties. The idea of her working in such an establishment was quite the surprise for everyone. Joanne, Julie's mother, tried to talk Julie out of working at the club. However, Julie insisted that she wanted to be an independent woman and promised her mother she would only ever be a waitress there, never a stripper. Julie, with her open mind, seemed to have taken to the establishment quickly. She would write in her diary, Everyone at school, home, and everyone else was duly shocked and amazed to think that good old Julie was working in a strip joint, as they inelegantly termed the sir, which is really a fairly classy, plushly carpeted, dark-paneled club with a nice atmosphere. The dancers are pretty decent people, not the $10 whores most of the men think they are. It was a strange experience watching a chick strip and dance completely nude, but after that, the initial novelty, it soon became an old hat and didn't bother me a bit. November 28th, 1975, the day after Thanksgiving, Julie was scheduled to work, but never arrived. Then November 29th came, and she once again never arrived for her shift. Being that this was completely out of character for Julie, Sir Lounge owner Gene Weston quickly grew concerned. In a 1976 press release by Waverly Assistant City Editor Lamont Olson, Weston was quoted as saying, I'd taken her home after work Thanksgiving night, and when she got out of the car, Julie said, I'll see you tomorrow night. When she didn't come in the first night, I thought maybe she'd planned to take some time off, and I had just forgotten. But when she missed two nights, I talked with my husband, and he said, call her folks. Jean did just that, and Julie's father wasted little time heading to Waverly to report Julie missing to authorities. He reported his daughter missing to Waverly Police Chief Clarence Wickham, asking him to please contact the media to get the word out on his missing daughter. Chief Wickham, apparently convinced that this was not a case requiring the utmost urgency, suggested that he contact newspapers and radio stations himself. In my research, a small blurb out of the Waterloo Daily Courier, published December 4th, was the earliest print media I could find asking the public for information. Two reports would eventually come in pertaining to sightings of Julie the day she disappeared. It was reported that Julie was seen at approximately 2 p.m. walking up Bremer Avenue in Waverly, and then later at 5.05 p.m. at a local shoe store. Early reports indicated that she was on her way to work during the 2 p.m. sighting. However, that would not explain why she was at a shoe store during the later reports of her being seen at 5.05. Despite my best efforts, I never could find anything that actually indicated what time Julie was due at work. I should note that it has been reported that Julie was living with her grandmother in Waverly during this time. I can only assume the two didn't cross paths often despite living in the same house as Julie's grandma has never been quoted as noticing she didn't come home for a couple days. I don't want to make too many assumptions on that situation, I just wanted to clarify her living situation to clear up any confusion. That being said, 
A search showed that Julie took no clothes or personal belongings with her when she left for the final time that day, November 28th. According to a December 17, 1975 article in the Plainfield News, there was speculation that Julie had attended a rock concert in nearby Olwine the night she disappeared. However, the reports were later determined to be false. The article stated that another band, the Dakotas, knew Julie, but when asked about her, none of them had seen her for quite some time. Despite police investigation and public pleas for information, no trace of Julie could be found. December 12th, 1975, Julie's 19th birthday, would come and go. Her family unable to celebrate with the daughter and sister they desperately wanted to come home. The Iowa winter would set in, snow covering the landscapes that Julie loved to paint. And as spring came, the snow would melt, and on March 18, 1976, a terrible discovery would be made. A Butler County Road maintenance worker would find the nude, badly decomposed body of Julie Ann Benning in a roadside ditch on a rural road about a mile northeast of Shell Rock, approximately 12 miles from where she disappeared. Julie had been shoved in a culvert where she had spent the winter before being washed out by the spring rains and melting snow. Preliminary results of Julie's autopsy were inconclusive, but it was eventually determined that her death was caused by homicidal violence. Like Valerie Klaskowski in 1971, Julie had been manually strangled. There would never be clarification on if she had been sexually assaulted, most likely due to the advanced decomposition of her body. The Butler County Sheriff's Department took over main jurisdiction on the case. However, Waverly Police and the Bremer County Sheriff's Office remained heavily involved. In the first months of the investigation, 250 to 300 people were interviewed, but no solid leads were formed. On Saturday, March 27th, Butler County Attorney Gene Shepard would receive an anonymous letter while the details of the letter have never been made known publicly, it apparently contained information pertaining to Julie's murder. Attorney Shepard would ask that the writer of the letter bring forth more information, as whatever information contained in the letter was not complete enough to be of use. If the author of the letter did ever send more information, it has never been announced publicly. Despite approximately 300 people being talked to in a mysterious letter, Investigators were unable to uncover any information or clues that could help them further the case along. Much like Valerie Klosowski, all they knew was that Julie vanished off a of Waverly Street, only to be found later, murdered by strangulation at the hands of some twisted individual, and discarded like she was mere trash. The second part of the investigation into Julie's murder would come in September of 1976, when another young woman would be strangled and found in a roadside ditch. While a few small comparisons were made between Julie and Valerie's murders, they were largely treated as two unrelated incidents. While those murders were years apart, we now had two young women murdered and discovered in a similar fashion in less than a year's time. We'll talk more about that section of the investigation next episode. For now, I want to jump ahead to 2015, when Des Moines Register journalist Mike Kylan would sit down with Julie's mother Joanne and sister Carol and Carol would reveal a shocking revelation and a new potential lead. Carol didn't give an exact date, but she stated that recently both her and Jody Ewing of Iowa Cold Cases had been approached by a man from a nearby town who claimed to be at the Surrey Lounge on November 28, 1975, the night Julie disappeared. The man, who also spoke to the register under the promise of anonymity due to threats he had received, claimed that not only did he see Julie at work that night, but he saw her being abducted from the front entry of the Sir Lounge. The man stated to the register, I'm not going to get anything out of this. I have no reason to lie. The man acknowledged that he was drinking that night, but claims he saw Julie at the front door 
taking money from customers when a struggle ensued. When the individual tried to get a better look at the confrontation, his view was blocked by other men, intentionally keeping him from seeing what was happening. The man would go on to say that a short time later in the parking lot, he saw what appeared to be Julia slumped in the passenger side of a pickup. When the pickup door was opened, he saw a man he knew with his hand near her throat, trying to cover the dome light with his other hand. He would later find clothes planted in his garage by the man or his associates that he believed to be Julie's. He, however, would throw them away, not yet knowing Julie was missing. The man made the claim that he told authorities in the months after what he had seen, and then he felt the need to come forward again after the death of his own daughter. Waverly Police Captain Jason Leonard told the Register he'd taken information from the man, and police have looked into every new lead, but there hasn't been any new information in the past two years. I can't help but wonder why this information was never relayed to the media if he did indeed tell the police in 1976. Were authorities afraid this would be too much information that may have tipped the murderer off? Or was the man perhaps the mysterious letter writer? I'd be very curious to know. Carol appears to believe the man's story. She would tell the register, It consumes me. For the first time in 40 years, I have a name. To imagine this beautiful girl, nude and stuffed in a culvert, covered in mud and leaves. The indignity of it. The man who did this is walking free, and I can't live with that. Carol, now Carol Keene, is a regular poster on the Iowa Cold Case website, a site whose links and resources are what is making these first episodes possible, showing her determination and dedication to her sister's case, as well as numerous other cases listed throughout the site. Six years after that Des Moines Register article, we're still left with more questions and answers. What exactly did happen to Julie Benning that night? For years, it was believed she never arrived at work. Forty years later, a man comes forward and tells what he saw. Not only did Julie arrive at work, but she was taken directly from there. While I can't find a record of anyone else seeing Julie at the Sur Lounge that night, the man's conviction is enough to convince two people who have extensive investments in the case, one being the sister of Julie. I don't like to make assumptions with such little information and a series of conflicting accounts of the day. I was never able to find what time the unidentified man saw Julie, or what time Julie was actually scheduled to start at work. I am open to the possibility that maybe Julie arrived at work, started taking money right away, by happenstance didn't see another employee, and the events described by the witness occurred very shortly after Julie began work. It would explain how both the man could witness these events, while no other employees or the owner happened to see Julie. This does raise the question as to why none of the patrons who paid while entering that night, reported seeing Julie. The answer is probably quite simple. This was Thanksgiving weekend. There could have been a number of out-of-towners coming in. There may also have been some individuals who didn't want it known that they were in such an establishment in the first place and felt that keeping their secret was more important than moving along the investigation. If Julie was indeed at work that night, the next question is, who would be brash enough to abduct a woman from the front of the establishment, where anyone could potentially see the events happen? For all intents and purposes, Julie was well-liked, never really dated, and seemed to get along with everyone at the Sir Lounge. All reports indicate there was absolutely no one who would seemingly want to do her harm. We do have to consider the type of place the Sir Lounge was, though. I am well aware that strip clubs, or gentlemen clubs, on any given night are mostly full of men just out to have a good time. They know the boundaries and aren't looking for anything further than the entertainment the establishment provides. It would be naive, though to say such places don't attract their fair share of weirdos and straight perverts. In a letter to one of her pen pals, Julie had wrote, A sleazy guy offered me $1,500 to go to bed with him, and I turned him down. I saw the money and knew he had it, but the idea of it bummed me out. 
I just didn't think I could live with myself later. Is it possible that man, or one with similar intentions, could have collected a couple buddies that Friday night and decided to grab Julie? Maybe. But at this point, it's impossible to tell. It's important to remember this is all speculation based off information given by another individual. Speculating what happened if Julie indeed never did arrive at work is a whole nother ball game, and frankly, I don't have much to say on that. It could be anyone from some sleazy wannabe John at the club to a complete stranger that saw Julie walking down the street and made the decision he was going to do something terrible. Or perhaps there was a serial strangler in Waverly, one that had already struck in 1971, now again in 1975, and was about to strike one more time in 1976. One thing I do have to say is that I strongly feel once again that it had to be a local. Like Valerie, Julie was found on a rural route. She had been stuffed in a culvert that I doubt was found by a lucky guess. The individual most likely knew it was there, regardless of how it all occurred. The fact remains that a young, vibrant life that belonged to a sister, a daughter, and a thoughtful and creative woman was taken from this world long before it should have been. If you want to look into any further information on Julie Benning, as well as Valerie Klosowski from last week, I encourage you to take a look at www.iowacoldcases.org. There you will find case summaries as well as links to several of the sources I used in the research for these cases. While I encourage you to share this podcast, I also strongly encourage everyone to share those case summaries. While 45 to 50 years isn't too late to solve the, these cases, they've grown very cold in the public eye and can use fresh awareness. You never know what old memories may be jogged if the right person was to be reminded. Next week, we'll take a look at Lisa Peake, the last victim in the Waverly Stranglings in the investigation that led police to believe Lisa and Julie's murders were connected. If you have any information on the murder of Julie Benning, please contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation at 712-258-1920 or contact the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation at 515-725-6010. If you wish to follow the show on social media, you can find me on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files or Twitter at Files Midwest. If you wish to send me case suggestions or questions, you can email me at midwestmysteryfilespod at gmail.com or hit me up on one of the social nets. I also want to thank the three individuals who have given me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It is greatly appreciated. If you're listening on Apple and enjoy the podcast so far, please leave a rating as well. This would give the show more attention on there and would help to shed more light on these cases. Take care, everyone, and I will see you next week.